Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app 24-6. And uh, yes, it's been a couple weeks, you know, summer hiatus. You know, this is the political slow season, or so it would seem. But hardly there's big political news out there, and it's not just about ice cream. Not just about Ben and Jerry's. I know that's been the cause du jour. I mean, what else can I say about it? Um, but uh, I will say something. And the big news, of course, is the Attorney General's report here in New York with regard to one governor, Andrew Cuomo, now in his third term, looking for a fourth term. And Cuomo, wow, this was a bombshell of a report. I mean, let's just recap for a second. A number of women from the New York State Executive Chamber, that is the fancy language for the governor's office in New York State, also known as the second floor because he occupies the second floor of the Capitol in Albany. Beautiful building, by the way. Uh, And Cuomo... Well, let's just say he's a little bit of an imperious personality. I don't think that's any any uh, surprise to anybody out there. But uh, having said that, a number of women came forward, first one, then two, and now they found nine who have all reported hostile work environment. But not just that. I mean, some of them, some of these allegations, and I urge you to read the report if you're not educated. It's quite disgusting about some of the grooming, if you will, I think that's the word, of victims. And, you know, he's kind of rode this out. I mean, this all came about from months and months ago. And there was this feeling from Andrew Cuomo that, of course, oh, well, I'll just tell my side of the story. Eventually, it'll get out, and I can survive this. Others have survived scandal. President Trump, uh, Governor Northam in Virginia had that blackface scandal. Does anybody even remember that years ago? And he's still in office. And others have survived scandal. Andrew Cuomo, I'm not sure, you know, certainly not one to back down and has even raising money to run for a fourth term. So not just kind of moving forward, but kind of embracing this. And I will say, as a guy who knows Albany pretty well and knows the politics pretty well, one kind of admired his ability to stay on message, to stay as governor, to keep his power despite the fact that many Democrats, if not you know almost all the congressional delegation, many prominent Democrats throughout the state have urged him to resign even before this bombshell report. And one has to think about the fact that he weighed his option and said, I don't have to resign. I can keep going about my business, and that's what the public cares about. And let's see what the report was. And somehow he expected that this was going to exonerate him, so much so you know, that he recorded this cringeworthy 14, 15-minute video essentially blaming his Italian heritage for his handsiness 
Is there a better word for that? Now, I'm no expert in the workplace environment. And, you know, the Me Too movement, I know that there are a lot of people out there who feel it's overblown. I read these allegations, and it's true what they say. If there's one, there's two. If there's two, there's more. Because there's no question that this inappropriate behavior uh, is is just awful. It's impossible to think that somebody there didn't know that it was wrong. Not just a little bit wrong, but really wrong. And there are women in the senior staff of the second floor of the New York State Executive Chamber of the governor's office who I'm sure knew what was going on. I don't want to – I'm not going to name names here. But the retaliation that went on against one of the accusers, that just positively awful. If somebody comes forward to – I mean, but this wasn't the only woman I, who came forward about sexual harassment. This was one of a number. And then to dig up dirt on her. It's sad. I mean, if you're a Republican and you're on the other side, there's certainly – and even if you're a political opponent of Andrew Cuomo, you're definitely taking a victory lap and saying that that entire mystique that was built around him, this entire – Cuomo, the king, the best governor in America. I mean, there are a lot of people. I mean, Elise Stefanik deserves credit for even in the heyday of Cuomo. They were, she was criticizing him as the worst governor in America based on his actual, his COVID record, his real record with regard to nursing homes, with regard to people dying needlessly, with regard to the incompetence, with regard to PPE, with getting equipment for calling for 60,000 ventilators when that was just a preposterous number. For not using the Javits Center for COVID patients, instead sending them into nursing homes to get everybody else infected, never taking responsibility for that. But the idea that at the same time you are doing these kinds of things to women, that you are transferring a state trooper to your protective detail, even though she wasn't qualified, even though she didn't meet the requisite number of years of service in order to be there in order that you could harass her and touch her inappropriately it's just it's just too much and you know i know people say well he called it's a political investigation tis james wants his job and june kim who was the investigator he has a history with cuomo (sighs) what can i say it's uh he hasn't mounted much of a defense. Just to say, I've been through a lot. This is terrible. You know, I'm Italian. I kiss a lot of people. I embrace a lot of people. I hug a lot of people. And therefore, you know, please excuse me. I'll try and do better. And sadly, if you're a New Yorker, as I said, you're a taxpayer. Even if you're an opponent of Andrew Cuomo, you're sad about the fact that this is a long list of statewide officials who have gone down in scandal. Oh, well, I guess Cuomo's soon to, soon to go down in scandal. We'll get to that in a second. I mean, let's think about it. I mean, the most famous, of course, Elliot Spitzer. That's the most spectacular fall from grace ever, probably in the history of politics. I'm just a 
wildly sordid story. But, of course, he had Alan Havasey, who was the controller, state of New York, had to resign in disgrace over bribes and other malfeasance. Uh, David Patterson didn't resign but had couldn't run for re-election. Scandal in his office. Eric Schneiderman. <laughs> I mean, just beating beating up women while trying to be a champion of women. I mean, that's the other thing about Andrew Cuomo. You know, so he he ran at a women's equality party. He created a women's equality party. You know, to be a champion of women at the same time he was doing this. And it's just a imperial personality if you will, that led to this lack of challenge. People don't challenge him. The legislature, pliant, the press. I mean, Cuomo, to the point of obsequious with regard to these press conferences about Cuomo, while at the same time he was killing people's grandparents and others and not fessing up to it, not taking any responsibility for it, lying about the numbers of deaths. Even this week, we had another CDC report talking about another report showing that New York State is underreporting by thousands actual COVID deaths because they have a different definition, quote unquote, of how deaths are recorded that is different from the CDC. So they're reporting one number to the public, to us, and they're reporting a second number to the feds about COVID deaths. And, you know, let's just talk about the worst of the press, and that's CNN, how they allow the governor's brother, Chris Cuomo, who, yeah, I think is a pretty decent interviewer, pretty decent journalist, but clearly ethically challenged as a journalist. I mean, I, I think you just have to you have to go there. I mean, the fawning, ridiculous interviews that he gave during the height of COVID to his brother, I mean, no journalistic value whatsoever, no probative value whatsoever, never asking a single question that mattered, while the governor, of course, as we know, admittedly by his own staff was lying about COVID deaths and COVID numbers and COVID regulations and taking credit for everything that was going on. Well, New York was one of the worst hit states and he was feuding with Mayor de Blasio and others and taking control and all kinds of stuff, but he was never challenging him about that. But then we find out that Chris Cuomo was collaborating with the government, with his brother's staff and on calls and conference calls and email chains plotting strategy with his brother while hosting a primetime, while being a lead, one of the leading journalists, not an opinion journalist, but this was, you know, this is not like, you know, Fox, it was Sean Hannity and somebody, you know, him working sometimes with the Trump campaign and being involved and saying, okay, I'm an opinion guy. Chris Cuomo doesn't come across as that. He doesn't admit to being that. And CNN going along with it the whole way. And they wonder why their credibility is shot with so many people. While so many people say, you know, CNN professes to be the middle of the road. You have Fox, you have MSNBC, you have CNN right in the middle, and CNN is impartial. But, of course, they have, you know, the worst governor in America that they're going along with. And it's, it's, it's just the fact that no one was willing to hold him accountable for so long. And it took something like this for brave women to come forward and say, this guy is bad. This guy uses his power to harass people, to assault people. to Hostile work environment doesn't adequately describe it as far as I'm concerned. It's just 
and I don't even understand as a practitioner of politics, and I like, of course, you like to get into this. The this this video. I mean, I, even President Trump, after the Access Hollywood tape, actually said, "I'm sorry." Whether you think he meant it or not, you know, he said, "Okay, this is locker room talk, etc." I'm embarrassed by it, but he didn't turn around and say, well, it's part of my heritage to do this. I've heard whatever. That is just, and this is not even, well, anyway, we'll go there. I mean, it is statement. It's my job is not about me. My job is about you. What matters to me at the end of the day is getting the most done I can do for you. And that is what I do every day, and I will not be distracted from that job. Now, that might have been a strategy months ago. That is not a strategy anymore. And let's just say that he's on the road to impeachment. Speaker Hasty has basically said the assembly is going to impeach him. Based on this evidence, there should be, I should be, I mean, he should be arrested. I mean, I, I don't want to prejudge this, but it seems pretty clear. Um, the only person who doesn't seem to realize that it kind of is over is Andrew Cuomo, unless he's plotting some kind of deal. Uh but the interesting thing about impeachment is different than what happens in Washington. Impeachment, the governor actually has to temporarily leave office. So once he gets impeached by the assembly, he will have to leave office. I don't know if he gets kicked out of the executive mansion, get kicked out, but he will have not have the powers. The powers then transfer to the lieutenant governor, who doesn't sit on the impeachment court, which the impeachment court is the Senate, plus the members of the state court of appeals, the highest court. And that's an interesting point because essentially removed at the time so let's see what happens another as i said sad day um i just have to think back to you know the last new york state governor who kind of left office not in scandal is uh, george pataki three-term classy governor and it's not a democrat republican thing um you know got tom denapoli is still there as controller but it's kind of sad that we have this type of infamy when it comes to New York state politics. And that's what you get with one-party rule, I think. One-party rule just does not allow politicians to be held accountable. Okay, we got to switch gears for a second. It's going to be a little bit of a short show this week. But I do – you know, I don't want to talk about ice cream. Um, I will say that it is just beyond – well, the Ben and Jerry's op-ed, we'll talk about that. You know, they go into the New York Times, as usual, and to say, well, our Jewish values tell us that we have to, you know, we have to do this. You know, the point here that they are just totally trying to gaslight everybody about, and they say, well, this is not about Israel. This is about the territories, which, of course, is a totally false statement, okay? The reason... The Ben and Jerry's board and the board chairman, who is a, a board chairwoman, is a who is a anti-Israel, who is a activist who believes that Israel should not exist at all, wanted to boycott Israel entirely. And Unilever said no. So instead, they and they and they and their Unilever Israel or the Ben and Jerry's Israel with a subsidiary said no, we can't do that. It's illegal in Israel. So they basically said we're ending your contract over this. Right, we're where you're saying, well, we're, we're not boycotting Israel. We are ending the contract 
over this disagreement about selling ice cream. Now, it's unclear whether they could sell ice cream to Jews or non-Jews. Maybe they're saying we can sell the ice cream to the non-Jews in the territories, but not to the Jews, which, of course, is that Jewish values, Ben and Jerry. Um, it's just, you know, totally inconsistent. And and when you think about it, I mean, nobody, again, boycott China. China has a million Muslims in prison, in concentration camps. It's kind of widely acknowledged. But yet, nobody is out there saying we won't have a franchise of ice cream in China. And I'm not saying Israel should be like China. I'm not saying Israel, anything, you know, we, we have to acknowledge that there are, there there should be room there should be room to criticize Israel, but there should never be room to criticize only Israel. And I think that that is the point here. And when the BDS movement, as most of our American politicians understand, except for some in the Congress, uh, some of, I think, seven, eight, ten who now voted to take away Israel's uh, take away Israel's uh, some Israeli organization's tax exempt status. That's like the new thing to go to the IRS. I hope, uh, yeah, we'll see. That probably never happened. But we have to acknowledge that there should be room, you know, out there to criticize Israel. That's acceptable, but not to criticize only Israel. Okay, let's go to politics. And as I said, politics never sleeps and never ends. We have had a week of primary elections in Ohio. And the interesting thing there is, well, there was a lot of prognosticators who said, well, the Trump endorsement is definitely dead. And there was a, a primary election in the suburbs of Columbus all the way out there. And the Trump back candidate won with a big assist, of course, from the Trump PAC, $350,000 in the last day. But yes, one, no question, President Trump still has a significant following in the Republican Party. His endorsement matters. I know all those people who want to throw out there and say, well, it doesn't uh, Trump, you know, he lost in Texas and there. But the big story is the fight, the intramural fight on the Democratic side. And I think that that's one to watch, particularly for those in the pro-Israel community who are, you know, I, I look, I believe in bipartisan support for Israel. I don't want to have a situation where there's only one party out there that supports the Jewish state. As much as I believe Republicans are more pro-Israel. And have better Israel lines more with the values. I am afraid of the left, and I feel that very strongly that I wish the Democrats would confront those on the left. But, 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 I still want pro-Israel Democrats to win when they're pitted against those who do not support Israel. So you have a leftist, uh, a left, uh, Nita Turner, a Bernie Sanders ally, who famously said that she was not endorsing Hillary Clinton in 2016 over Donald Trump. And then she said she wasn't going to even support President Biden. And I guess that came back to haunt her. This kind of became a proxy battle between Bernie Sanders and the left and AOC and the squad uh, in the suburbs of, of Cleveland, Cleveland in the suburbs, uh, to replace Marsha Fudge, who had retired. And these were um, uh, who became HUD secretary. And the moderate, Chantel Brown, uh, came in. Apparently, the one poll that was shown out there, she was like 30 points behind. She ended up winning, going away. And this became a proxy battle, as I said, between Bernie Sanders and the left and Jim Clyburn and the Congressional Black Caucus, who did who wanted uh, a centrist Democrat. And Chantal Brown ended up winning, and but not by not by a little bit, by a comfortable margin. And we've seen over the recent. Uh, 
time, it, since the Biden election, these special elections, uh, we saw in Louisiana that there was a moderate one. Uh, we saw in uh, we saw in Ohio that a moderate one. We saw in Virginia that Terry McAuliffe a moderate one, and we've even seen in New York City, deep blue New York City, uh, the moderate candidate. If uh, Eric Adams won the primary, despite it was supposed to be the progressive year, and the second place finisher was also a relative moderate, certainly can, can when compared to the left, those who had got state opposition's on the far left, uh, Catherine Garcia. So all that talk of the progressive ascendancy, but not really progressive, the far left DSA, Democratic Socialist squad ascendancy in the Democratic Party, the anti-Israel, the anti-Biden, you know, that is certainly not happening in a meaningful way in these contested elections. When it comes down to it, you see that the middle of the road coalition of Democrats is the one that is winning these elections in the off year. Now, it could be lower turnout. It could be a lot of things. But the other thing is, of course, is that Nina Turner, um, you know, when you're out there campaigning, campaigning in a Democratic primary and you're saying, I don't support President Biden, you know, I don't support. I didn't support Hillary Clinton. Like I'm, I'm too. They're too far to the right for me. It just. I don't know. It just seems like if there's more participation from people paying attention, that just seems to be the wrong tack to take politically. Uh, anyway, that is the. I think that's the takeaway. That's the lesson that we have to take away from you know what's going on. Um, you know this week in politics is that you know. When the electorate pays attention, the more people are more informed, people are out there thinking more about politics and elections, and it's not just about Facebook and the like. I think that that is a good – that tends to be a good – a good path for moderates – to uh to win or more moderate at least on the democratic side the republican side a little bit different right now uh but uh we shall see as more primaries happen and more elections happen and i just want to close with the you know kind of echoing what eric adams said on election night that twitter is not real life and i think we saw that from this election in ohio um it was pointed out to me i saw that brown that Chantel brown who won had twenty thousand twitter followers uh Nita Turner had 500,000, and uh, look who won. So again, Twitter doesn't vote. Uh, well said, uh, probably, most likely, soon to be mayor, Eric Adams. That's, week. that's it for this week here on Spin Class, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.